Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, my podcast this week is with Jeff Wassel. It has to do with some more info, uh, some pretty detailed info actually, on GPB Capital. David Gentili, a Scientologist who's in a whole lot of trouble. They got raided by the FBI and various other things. Uh, about a month or two ago. Uh, we did a podcast on that here on this channel, we, me, we meaning uh, me and Jeffrey Augustine, and then me and Jeff Wassel, uh, Dr. Jeff Wassel, by the way, who uh, is uh, has a history in forensic accounting, uh, decided to take a deep dive into this, and we went into some pretty good detail about it, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and interesting, uh, kind of where the discussion went. So anyway, I hope you guys will check that out. And we have some really big and pretty interesting questions this week, so I'm just going to get right into it. So here we go. Kyle Howarth. I myself have had a cultic experience, and there is a book I read on recovery, and it mentions about a thing called floating, which is where there will be times in which you're just staring into space, if you will, and you start reminiscing on the good times in the cult. Think about missing it and want to go back. My question is, have you experienced this? I never thought to go back despite the bad stuff due to missing family and friends, etc. Okay, good question, Kyle. Um, I've certainly experienced instances of what I guess you would call floating, uh, where, you know, in daydreaming or even more frequently over the last, you know, six, seven years, um, in, uh, in nightmares, in, in real dreams. Uh, where I have experienced, you know, going back or being back or being stuck back or, you know, getting trapped back in it or something. Um, and I know the question is more along the lines of, you know, like voluntarily going back, and I'll get to that, but I'm just kind of saying some of what I've experienced over the years with this. There was a lot more of that at the beginning, a lot more of those nightmarish kind of episodes early on, and that took a few years to kind of chill out where it doesn't really happen as frequently anymore. Um, you know, once every few months, let's say now, whereas, you know, back in the early days it was, well, it was more frequent. Um, now, as far as voluntarily going back or looking back on it with fondness and, and the friends I miss and the, 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 the things about it, you know, I've commented a little bit about this in the past on the fact that there is a great deal of certainty, assuredness, confidence that Scientology gives you in a worldview and belief system that is all-encompassing or claims to be all-encompassing. And so you feel like you're walking around with all the answers. You know, you feel like you've got, a, you got life taped. You understand people, you know where they're coming from, you know why they act the way they do, you see them do stupid, silly, crazy stuff, and you go, yep, the reactive mind, or oh yeah, that's an evil purpose, or oh, clearly the guy hasn't misunderstood, or whatever your label explanation is for it, based on L. Ron Hubbard's, you know, teachings. Um, there, is, there are very few situations that you're going to run across as a Scientologist that you're not going to feel like you know exactly what's going on and exactly what the actual problem is and you therefore feel like you're on top of it, you're not in, confused about life, you know, there's, life will throw you curves and problems that you're going to have to deal with, but uh, when it comes to human behavior and where people are coming from and why people act the way they do and why the world is such a confusing mess and all of that, 
you feel like you have answers for all of those questions. And, and you do have answers for them. They just don't happen to be true. So, um, so that level, I've commented before and I'll say again here, uh, that level of certainty is something that I have missed in the past. I have, I have yearned for it. It has been a difficult thing to not have that and to instead be filled with questions and, and be having to hunt for the answers and finding that in many cases those answers don't exist or at least don't exist in the, to the degree that I was used to them existing. Where you could simply go and look up the answer in an index somewhere to why people get sick, why, you know, this, that, the other thing, right? Why do people argue? Why are people critical? Why, you know, blah, 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 right? Why don't, why don't kids get along with their parents? Why don't parents get along with their kids? Etc. Etc. L. Ron Hubbard had something to say about all this stuff. Um, now I'm finding that you know if you really want to find the answers to these things, that you're finding that the answers are kind of complicated and very uncertain, and uh, and that that is, and the science is really all about probabilities uh, more so than 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 solid certainties. That's not that's not what science does for us, and um, and it's the confusion about that that actually creates a lot of the animosity towards science. <laughs> So, um, okay, so, so that is something that I've, had a, that I've had issues with over the years. And, of course, I have certainly had times where I have missed people. The, the loss of relationships that I had um, sometimes can be quite painful because, you, you know, you, you lose people and, and to disconnection or, you know, because life just happens and you move on. And sometimes you get the little heart pangs, you know, and the little, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, you see something that reminds you of them or, or a show or, you know, something like that. So that kind of thing happens, certainly. I would say it happens less to me now than it used to. But, um, and that's all just part of the, you know, mo moving on and having more time and distance from, you know, the source of the trauma and the pain and all that. And, of course, all the active, you know, work I've been doing on recovery. So... Um, so anyway, yeah, I have experienced floating. I have experienced the idea of, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I could go back and have that kind of certainty again and fall in line with a belief system that, you know, gives you all the answers. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, yeah, sure. Sure I have. But, uh, but, it, but, it, but it's never really been a tempting choice because um, I will, you know, my philosophy <laughs> at this point in my life uh, is that I would much rather live with an uncomfortable truth than uh, a convenient lie. So that's, that's my answer. Jack M. I watched and read a lot of stories from ex-Scientology members. Almost all, to the best of my recollection, escaped Scientology because of mismanagement. In your opinion, if management was not the issue, do you believe Scientology's member count would be close to, let's say, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon numbers? Or do you believe the degree of nonsense would eventually result in members leaving the same way that they are leaving now? Okay, so mismanagement is a pretty, pretty broad, generic term. And, um, and I, but, I, but I know what you're talking about because I think what you're referring to here are um, by mismanagement, we're talking about the abusive behavior of Scientology. If Scientology were not abusive, right? Because when we talk about, when exes talk about mismanagement, they're talking about David Miscavige violating the scriptures of L. Ron Hubbard, as these Scientologists understood them. And so they felt like they were being persecuted or victimized by the church as an entity or by individuals, powerful individuals within the church, like Miscavige or 
you know, whoever was dealing with them, probably a Sea Org member or a staff member. And so they felt like the system was being twisted and turned and, and thwarted on them and that they were getting a bum steer, a bum rap, and, and they got kicked out of the church or they left the church and they thought, you know, it's been corrupted, David Miscavige is screwing over Hubbard's intention, and so, you know, you're asking, well, if that wasn't happening, would Scientology be growing? Um, no. It wouldn't be. <laughs> um, and the, the reason for that is because, uh, well, a couple things. Um, it wouldn't have Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon numbers no matter what because uh, those guys have been around for a lot longer and been building up their customer base for, for you know, decades, you know, Mormons over 100 years. Um, so they've had a lot more time to build up to the millions of members that they actually have. Scientology is you know, very, very young uh, in that regard. And it's not a growing, thriving thing. It hasn't been since the 70s, really. I mean, maybe, eight, you know, some period in the 80s. So, um, but it was never really over a million members. I mean, it never achieved those non kind of numbers. So it would take, you know, a, a long time to build that up. Um, but the conditions you're asking about, of course, um, the reason I say no is because Scientology makes promises that it absolutely positively does not deliver on within the course, the span of a person's life. See, the thing about Christianity and about, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, or the thousands and thousands of other denominations of Christianity out there are that they are all predicated on the idea that you are going to have immortality in a paradise existence outside of this life when you die. And that's it. That's all they're really promising. They're not, you know, they're saying, look, you, there's all these strictures, all these things you have to do, and there's, and there's hundreds and thousands of, of different ideas and guidelines and rules, so we don't even need to get into the specifics of what those rules are. But they all do have some rules. There's some kind of system in place there, right? That's what makes them a denomination of Christianity is that there is a Christ belief and there's this idea that, you know, that you believe in him and, and the salvation and, and, uh, and you're going to end up in a better place or somehow have this closer relationship with Jesus and with God. That's all stuff that happens after you die. <laughs> you know, the only thing you're being promised in this life, as I understand it from, from Christianity, is um, a, a closer relationship with the spirit and with, you know, and, and perhaps, you know, moments of epiphany and, and religious awe, you know, and, and, and moments of fervor, but not, not superpowers, right? These are very different things. These spiritual experiences are, are very different from superpowers, right? And Scientology makes clear-cut promises that it will relieve medical problems, that it will relieve bad eyesight, that um, that beyond the body, that it will, um, it's a prosperity gospel in many ways in Scientology. Um, you're constantly promised that if you pay now, you will see that return to you tenfold by doing Scientology. Um, I've never really worded it that way, but that, that, that is part of the sales process of Scientology for sure. So, of course, my point being with all of this that we can argue specifics, but, my, but, but the overall point here is that Scientology is making this lifetime promises uh, that you are supposed to see manifest before you in this world, in the here and now. 
it does not deliver on those promises. You can only fake it till you make it for so long. And it's really quite impressive how long some Scientologists fake it till they make it and they never make it and they end up, you know, leaving or more often, especially with the OT8s these days, uh, who haven't died off, is that they just fly under the radar. They just kind of disappear and fade away from Scientology. Um, I think if you did a census count on OT8s, you'd, you'd have some pretty interesting results as far as how many of them are just gone. Um, and not, you know, some of them have died, but others have just gone. And uh, they're just out of Scientology and they don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. So um, anyway, that might be an interesting uh, stat to get. So, but you, you don't have to get to OT8 to realize that this is all just kind of smoke and mirrors and you're being promised the sun, moon, and stars and being delivered a you know, cow pie on a plate, right? So, uh, so th there's a point where people realize that these promises are not manifesting, that they are not getting all these gains they're supposed to be getting. And, and that is, that's the real start of the road out. It's just that when there's this mismanagement situation, it just exacerbates and speeds up the process. But it doesn't, it doesn't, I wouldn't say it's the causative the, the beginning of the end was not when the ethics officer started yelling at you. The beginning of the end was when you came out of, you know, the auditing session, you know, your, your 100th auditing session, and you're still at grade one on the grade chart. You've paid in $50,000, and you still are thinking, I still got as many problems now as I did when I first got here. That's the beginning of the end, you see. But it, but it needs that that little that little <laughs> spark needs to be fanned and 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 blown on and and exacerbated into you know what it what the, what it really is, which is oh the truth is there's nothing here, right? There's no there there in Scientology. And and once you realize that, the abusive stuff, the mismanagement, as you're calling it in your question, just speeds that process up. I think so. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's my that's my answer to that. Jaime Sidor. I am curious about karate dojos that turn into destructive cult-like situations. Ever since I first heard you mention this, I have been very interested in the how and why. Before your show, I had never even considered the possibility or likelihood that this does or could happen. I also have never been a member of a dojo of any kind, so the atmosphere and culture of such is relatively unknown to me, aside from what I have seen in movies, which we all know are sometimes inaccurate depictions, whatever the subject. I have done a little research on it, but I would love to hear you discuss this. Great. I'm glad somebody finally asked me about this. Um, I've actually been meaning to do a podcast about this topic, and I was going to use the Karate Kid as a model for that, and I probably still will. Um, the new uh, uh, Cobra Kai series on YouTube is actually doing a pretty good, really, championship job of showing how this kind of thing go comes about. Um, and I don't want to put any spoilers on it for you. I think you just go check it out. But um, but it's kind of a, it's a it's a pretty good depiction of this. What we see in karate dojos, like any other destructive cult group, is a is a dynamic between a, a leader, the, the 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 sensei, and his students, and um, that dynamic can become abusive. And when it does, that's when you start getting the destructive cult elements coming into play. It's, it's necessary in any teacher-student relationship that the teacher have authority and that the teacher be able to control and tell the students what to do because a student will never learn if he's not controlled to some degree because he doesn't know what he's doing. 
By definition, a student is one who has to learn what he's doing, and the teacher, by definition, is somebody who already knows what he's doing and is trying to impart that knowledge to others. There's nothing abusive, inherently abusive, in that relationship of imparting knowledge or information, even knowledge or uh, practice that involves violence. That doesn't have to be an abusive relationship, but it does have to be, you do have to get the information across in such a way that the person actually gets it. And so when you're learning how to fight, that means you're going to have to fight, and so there's going to be physical violence. But again, if it's done properly, that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be abusive. Abuse centers in when you start pushing the limits, or you breaking the limits that are already agreed upon, or the person is made to do things that they, that they truly do not want to do, uh, but they are forced to do them um, through circumstances. And those things that they're being made to do, again, with the abuse, is, are things that are actually harmful to them, that they're not helpful. Right? We know in a physical endurance situation that you're going to have to do stuff you'd really rather not do. So it's not just that component, it's the part that it's actually harmful to you also, okay? Um, that's where things become bad or destructive or abusive. Um, you know, giving, um, giving kids disciplinary actions that actually, you know, permanently cripple or hurt them, for example, or uh, breaking bones or, you know, some, this kind of thing, right, accidentally. Um, you know, having some kind of a bully-like environment. I mean, you're fostering, uh, you know, kids being bullied or something. I mean, these are the kind of things that can happen in these dojos. Um, but most specifically, it has to do, most, you know, it was interesting. I heard Joe Rogan go on a whole roll about this one time, and I was very interested in the fact that there's a lot of fake senseis out there, too. So it's not just a matter of, um, you know, all karate dojos have a teacher who really does know what he's doing and he's teaching these kids. There's some dojos out there where these teachers are all talk. They, they, they put on a good show and make it look like they know what they're talking about, but they really don't. And they're actually misteaching these kids uh, or their students because obviously they can have adult students too. I mean, I'm talking about this, the, these kids in these dojos, but the, all, everything I'm saying applies to adult students too. So um, anyway, so you can have people out there who are total fakes and yet put on, a, put on a show. And those people tend to be the kind of people who feel like they have something to prove uh, because they're, you know, they're lying, they're deceiving people, and they kind of know it. And so they are the ones who tend to push boundaries more, who tend to uh, be more abusive if they are challenged in some fashion, um, you know, will, will tend to be, you know, kind of use punishment drive on their, on their students. Uh, you know, whereas, you know, pain is the lesson rather than how to actually do the technique is the lesson, right? There's, there's a difference. Um, these are the kind of things you see manifest in these, in these situations. I have to talk in general terms because, of course, I don't have my own personal experience with this. But in a situation where you see, uh, you know, I'm just going to, again, I'll just point back to the original Karate Kid movie as an example of this because it's a real good one. And it's actually, unfortunately, a fairly realistic one, too. Uh, when you have dojos being run like little military camps, right? And it's yes, sir, no, sir, right? Sort of thing. And it goes beyond just a respectful relationship, but this sort of 
you know, military-esque kind of, you know, shouting, yes, sir, ever, sir, you know, how high, sir, sort of thing. That kind of thing's not necessary in order to teach somebody how to defend themselves. So, uh, you know, yeah, you need discipline, but, you know, it, there, are, there are lines you don't need to cross. So, anyway, those are some of the things I can sort of just throw off at the top of my head. A little bit of a disorganized answer, I felt, but I hope that this imparts to you some, some real examples of how that kind of behavior gets manifested at that, you know, in that kind of a situation. James Hacker. I wanted to ask if you hold any respect for any Scientologist's point of view. From what I've learned, Scientologists are so indoctrinated in a particular way of thinking that they cannot possibly think for themselves. This especially includes politics and their apparent support of Trump. I've also figured out that certain prominent Scientologists, such as Kirstie Alley, are pro-life, based on her Twitter feed. This leads me to believe that she has absolutely no knowledge of the Sea Org pressuring women to have abortions. Is this another example of Scientology manipulating their followers? What do you think? Hey James, this is really good. There's a lot of, a lot of, this is a pretty beefy question here. You've thrown a lot of stuff at me, and let me break it down this way. Um, yes, I do hold respect for Scientologists' point of view on issues that are not Scientology related. <laughs> um, you know, if a if a if a person who was a Scientologist was also a molecular biologist and had something to say about molecular biology that was on his discipline and that was actually science-based and real, uh, you know, I might have something, I, I might listen to that person. I'm not going to exclude everything they say just because they're a Scientologist. However, we have to be aware of how Scientology affects people's point of view across the, the spectrum of life, as you pointed out. And it is not that Scientologists are so indoctrinated that they can't possibly think for themselves. I want to be, I'd like to actually take a moment to be really super specific about how Scientology or other cultic belief systems affect a person's ability to think. Um, because I think this is important as a, as a, as a point of, of differentiation. It's not that people who get involved in destructive cults can't think for themselves. It's that they are given a specific set of rules and guidelines through which they have to filter all of their thoughts. And that's this is a slightly different thing, but it's an important distinction. Um, you're always thinking for yourself. There's nobody else doing your thinking but you. Okay? So... When somebody else is controlling your thinking or, you know, engaging in thought reform or mind control or there's all the stuff we're talking about, what they're doing is they're getting you to agree to a certain set of filters or biases or prejudices or principles or rules or guidelines or beliefs, whatever word you want to use. They're all pretty much the same thing when it hits the neurons. But they're, they're, they're getting you to adopt a certain way of thinking. And when, it, when you adopt a certain way of thinking, then that's going to affect, you know, how you look at all kinds of things. If you adopt, for example, the idea or belief that you are a spiritual immortal being who has lived near infinity, infinite amount of time in the past and will live infinitely into the future, if you have that as a core belief and you agree to that, you're going to see all kinds of things from a very different point of view from the kind of person who doesn't believe that. And there's all, and that's just a core belief. There's a whole pile of beliefs that Scientology 
brings in that pile that they pile in on you and once you start accepting one and then the next and then the next and then it's easier and easier to accept more and more of them and after a while you just sort of see the world the same way L. Ron Hubbard did um, in a way you know you'll never really see the world the way L. Ron Hubbard did because you're not L. Ron Hubbard right you are you you have your own background education knowledge and experience so so everything is always you know through your lens but you have all these like I said you put these filters in place so when it comes to things like Trump well not all Scientologists support Trump they're not mindless automatons it's just that they have been given a set of values that are pretty conservative values politically they're pretty classical conservative uh, in that they are you know views that were expressed by L. Ron Hubbard in the 1950s and 60s for the most part that's when most of his lectures happened so that's when that's the time period when most Scientologists are being indoctrinated into L. Ron Hubbard's point of view on politics and then they translate that to now and that translates to people like Trump and the GOP and that sort of thing for the most part Okay, so that's why they tend in that direction. Kirstie Alley may or may not know that Scientology, that Sea Org members are, have been pressured into having abortions, and she might still be pro-life. And while that might sound incredibly hypocritical, and it is, it's also, uh, it speaks to what I'm talking about here because Kirstie Alley can have a personal belief that things that, that babies should be born and that abortion should never occur. But because she's also a Scientologist, she has a very core belief that Scientology is the single most important thing in the universe, not just on this planet, but anywhere in existence. And that the Sea Org, come right on the heels of that belief, is another belief that the Sea Organization are the custodians of L. Ron Hubbard's legacy. They are the ones who deliver the, the OT levels and, you know, are, are charged with the security of the Sea Org and with safeguarding Scientology and keeping Scientology working forever. So she views the Sea Organization as the Jedi Knights of the universe. She views them as the, the pinnacle of ethical authority and, and you know, embodying everything that Scientology is supposed to be. That's the Sea Org to most Scientologists. Um, so the Sea Org can't really do any wrong. And uh, if they do do wrong, if they do something that seems to violate some basic moray or ethic of, of, of the world or of common sense or of Scientology, well, they're the Sea Org. They have their own policies they operate on. They are, they are um, executing L. Ron Hubbard's command intention, and uh, as, as expressed through David Miscavige, of course. And so they're on a whole different playing field than, you know, Kirstie Alley or, or any other person is on. So the rules they operate on are different than the rules everybody else operates on. And so therefore, if Sea Org members get pregnant through some moment of incautiousness or personal issue or something, and they have to deal with that by going to get an abortion so they can stay in the Sea Org, well, clearly that's the greatest good for the greatest number. So clearly, they, that's okay. You know, abortion in that case, that's acceptable, right? This is all the gyrations that go on up, up in the, up the head of Kirstie Alley. 
one possible scenario, of course. I don't know what Kirstie Alley really believes, but this is what I'm describing to you is absolutely what Scientologists in general would do if you confronted them about Sea Org members having abortions, you know, versus the uh, pro-life stance of Scientology or L. Ron Hubbard or whoever. So you see how this, you know, how this kind of goes is you can rationalize anything. <laughs> that's, that's the amazing thing. That's the amazing function that this, that this thing, this brain here serves, is that it's, abil- it's, it's able to rationalize anything. So we really kind of need to get over being so shocked and awed and surprised at what people believe anymore because we kind of understand at this point that anything goes up here. Uh, so, you know, logic ain't got nothing to do with it, <laughs> you know. Uh, when you have accepted, you know, and taken in and, and, and fervently believe, you know, certain core things, you will wrap all the other data you receive around those beliefs. That's what it means to have a core belief. So, uh, so that's, you know, how Kirstie Alley can be so hypocritical and yet in her own mind is not hypocritical at all. And if you call her a hypocrite or come after her for that, she's just going to brush it off because she doesn't see herself that way. Um, and this was, you know, this was something I only fairly recently realized because I, I thought, you know, the hypocrisy of some of these things might be a really good avenue to utilize in pointing out the flaws to people. But, you know, then I realized how the thinking goes and I, I went, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's just, that, you know, really that's just... Um, uh, virtue signaling to your allies. <laughs> you know, when you're talking about, when you're pointing up the hypocrisy of, of another, you know, group's belief system or something, you're really just talking to your own people. You know, you know, the other side doesn't think that. So they're not, that's not going to get them, oh, gee, let me think about that for a minute. You know, I mean, it, it, sure, it's, it might be seed planting in some cases, but in most cases, it's not going to be very effective. So, uh, anyway, just a little, uh, uh, probably more than you were asking for on this question, but I thought that might be a more, uh, a better angle to answer the question on because I thought it might be more broadly applicable to all kinds of situations and, and explain what you were asking about at the same time. I hope it did. Thank you. Patrick Gavin. Hubbard uses the words his research and his study, but it seems that most of it was just made up research. Did no one question the methodology? peer review, consensus, answering my own question in advance, he is the source, and that's it. Well, actually, Patrick, you, you did answer your question with the exact right answer. And not only is L. Ron Hubbard's source, the source of Scientology, he literally called himself Source, like with a capital S. That's L. Ron Hubbard. He is known as Source in Scientology. So, uh, so yeah, he, you know, his, his little head is, is the source of all of this. His philosophical musings and ramblings and all of that is what con- most of Scientology consists of. When Hubbard was ever called on the carpet at all, and he, and he never really was by Scientologists, but there were people outside Scientology who would challenge the scientific, you know, veracity of, of Hubbard's works, he always, he always just reversed it with a personal attack back on the people who were making these claims or questions. He, he never provided the actual research notes or information 
or survey information or whatever it was he was basing his ideas on. And very, very often, and this comes from people who worked with him, his, uh, his experiments <laughs> or studies consisted of a series of one or two. I mean, these were just, you know, oh, does this work? You know, oh, it seems to me, here's, here's the research method, right? Hmm, this person is doing this weird thing. I wonder why they would do that. Maybe it's, I'll bet you it's because of this. Okay, write it down. Go put this person in session and do this on them. And then they go do it. And then the results come back and the person feels better because he just had a special session directed by L. Ron Hubbard personally. So, of course, he's all hyped. And he's going to say whatever L. Ron Hubbard wants him to say because, of course, he's helping L. Ron Hubbard in his research. And so, there's your series of one. We got the result we wanted. Oh, the guy feels so much better about whatever it was he was, you know, being audited on. Well, clearly, this is the solution. And then comes the bulletin Hubbard would write saying, I have done research on blah, and here is what I have found, and therefore, here's the solution for everybody's, you know, headaches or whatever it was he was solving that day. And that, that tended to be how the research trail would go with Ron. Um, so, you know, I don't really know what else to say about that, except um, it, it is as ridiculous as it sounds. But it was also all done in a time, you know, remember, harken back, 50s, 60s, 70s. This was done in a time when, when people, when, when somebody like Hubbard was using scientific-sounding terminology and language or specialized language like engrams, locks, secondaries, you know, all the stuff that comes out of Dianetics or, you know, ARC breaks and present-time problems and, and uh, Thetans and all the Scientology lingo. When you're using specialized language like that, people who don't know that language and are coming into that newly or who are newly, freshly examining it, tend to be, not always, but tend to be pretty impressed with that kind of thing. And they tend to, and they'll start making assumptions that are not warranted, <laughs> like that there are file cabinets of research data somewhere in somebody's office, in Hubbard's office somewhere, or in his archives. And they hear about L. Ron Hubbard archives, and they don't know that that's just all the lectures he ever gave on reel-to-reel cassettes, right? They think, oh, archives, there must be all this research data. Now, <laughs> there isn't. So, uh, no, so people just assume that these things exist when they don't. And that is the case with most Scientologists. No one in Scientology ever really asks about this. And it's, you know, in, in hindsight, it's, it's embarrassing for me to, to admit that. It never even occurred to me to ask. Or if I did, it was, I was just told, well, you know, that's all up, up lines. You know, if I was like, I, I would love to see the case studies. I think I did comment on this a couple times when I first got in. You know, I'd love to see all these case studies he keeps talking about and stuff. Because he mentions in uh, an early Dianetics work that there were either 49 or 149 or 349 case studies. You know, it depends on which one you're listening to as to which number he gave you. But there were all these case studies. And I thought, God, it would be amazing to go through all those notes and see all that stuff. And I think one time a supervisor told me, yeah, that would be really interesting. But, you know, we, we don't have access to any of that. Uh, so there, there went that idea, right? <laughs> so uh, that's kind of how that tends to go in Scientology.
Peter. One observation I have from watching your videos and checking out related information is that often people join religious groups due to some very intense experiences, something which changes the way they look at the world and its spirituality. I also understand that at least some of these experiences can be created by quote-unquote normal methods, i.e. methods that are understood by psychology and there is no need to rely on spirituality to explain them. For example, I'm thinking about the quote-unquote high feeling Scientologists have on the TRs. Another example is what Darren Brown demonstrated in his show, How to Convert an Atheist. I think in both cases the receiver is convinced that something supernatural is happening, something that cannot be explained by science. As a result, they are receptive to the explanation offered and become a believer. Do you have any advice for where slash how to experience such an enlightenment safely? Personally, I would love to experience this myself. I also think this should be simply part of public education. It should be part of the curriculum at schools. Kids should learn algebra, experience what it feels like to sprint 100 meters, and experience how their own mind works. It should be available in community colleges. Heck, I think it should be part of traveling fun fairs. Okay, um, not sure what to say about all the last part of that, but um, the truth is that you're experiencing exactly what you're describing there about how someone can, you know, think that they're having a supernatural experience anytime you want. All you have to do is tell yourself you're having a supernatural experience and suddenly all the things you are observing and feeling and uh, seeing will take on a supernatural tone and can be explained in supernatural terms. I mean, that's really how easy it is, is simply tell yourself that's what's happening. Uh, or ask yourself if that's what's happening and suddenly your mind will readily uh, cooperate with that supposition. Right? That's, that's how we work. That's how we operate. I mean, the, the, the way we think is an extremely counterintuitive process. I'm not going to go into the whole thing here. But it's, but it, but it kind of, it, it's not really the way we experience how we think or how we come to decisions or actions or agree or, or, or beliefs. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's very backwards from kind of how we think it is in that we um, come to decisions and, and, and ideas about things based mostly on subconscious, you know, uh, actions and activities that we're not aware of that influence our decision-making process or our rational process, as, as you might think of it, uh, which really hardly exists at all, by the way. <laughs> uh, you know, our experience of what we're thinking about is, is only a, a very, very, very tiny percentage of all the things that the brain is actually thinking or doing. If you, if you define thinking as, as mental processes or neurons firing, then there's all kinds of thinking going on that you are not aware of and never will be. Uh, you know, regulating the uh, involuntary parts of the body are some of that, but there are also all kinds of other things going on. So these are the things that, you know, that lead to how you go about making decisions or deciding things are true or false. And so, um, so there's all kinds of factors hitting you. And Darren Brown, in his, you know, great shows that he does, he demonstrates how malleable and easy it is to manipulate people's decisions or, or views about things. Um, it's really nothing. It's not really hard at all. Anytime you look at an optical illusion that's happening, your, your, your mind is literally filling in blanks that don't, you know, or putting in lines, let's say, 
where none exist because the optical illusion is making you think something's there when your brain's telling you, well, this is what's supposed to be there, but it's not there, and you know it's not there, but you're still seeing it, right? Like, how does that happen? Well, it's because the brain's constantly trying to make sense of things and is trying to predict your reality based on past experience. So it's trying to fill in the blanks where, you know, they might exist uh, with something that's familiar and sensible to you, you know. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm kind of really condensing a lot of very, very complicated information, but I'm, I'm using this to make the point that this kind of thing that you're asking about, having these kind of spiritual experiences where you believe you're having a spiritual experience, so that's how you interpret it, that's not an unusual way of thinking is the point I'm trying to make. That is how you think all the time. You're just very used to it. <laughs> and, you know, things like converting an atheist belief, well, that's a fairly spectacular thing. So it seems like it's something unusual and different in our thinking processes. But really, Darren Brown is just pointing out that this is just the regular way that people process information. Uh, this is the way your brain works. And I'm going to take advantage of the way your brain works to show you something spectacular, but I don't have to, Darren Brown here, I, he doesn't have to do anything amazing or weird or different to the person to get them to, to get their brain to, to fill in the blanks or do whatever it is he wants it to be doing, you see, is, is kind of where I'm going with that. So, hope that makes sense. Um, I do feel, I do agree with you that kids should be taught all about this um, so that they do know how they think. Because right now, the way we're taught, the classical way of, of how we're being taught, how we think, and what psychology is all about, and all that, and what the brain's doing, there's very recent research that is very much changing the traditional view of emotion and thinking. And um, I will be elaborating on a lot of that in later videos, but I just wanted to comment on it here because um, people can think because the experience is so wild that their brain must be doing something really wild. Not necessarily true. You know, and that's all, that's all I'm saying here. So, thanks for asking. Okay, that is our show for this week. I hope my answers were interesting, educational, and entertaining. Um, and I hope that you guys are enjoying coming and listening to my show here. Uh, if you are, consider supporting me through Patreon. And uh, definitely, please, subscribe to my channel and uh, share this information around the interwebs. Thanks for coming around. Leave any questions, comments, feedback in the comments section below. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.